You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, please take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Have you ever participated in a prayer group of some sort and heard a request that went something like this. Mr. So-and-so is doing really, really well. So let's pray for him. Or Sister So-and-so has been a real blessing to me and my family lately. Can we just take a moment and lift her up in prayer? I can honestly say that in all of the organized prayer gatherings that I've been a part of in my life, I have never once heard a request like that. Not once. Because our natural tendency is to base our prayers on perceived needs, both physical and spiritual, but particularly physical. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should take our physical needs before the Lord. But it is just as important for us to also get into the habit of taking our spiritual needs to Him as well. And not just spiritual needs. We need to pray spiritual prayers even when the need may not seem to be there. It's important for us to get into that habit because we need to take more to the Lord than just physical requests. We need to pray spiritual prayers. And then to take it even a step further, we need to pray spiritual prayers even for those who are doing well spiritually. Even for those who are doing well. That's what Paul does here in the opening section of Philippians. He says, here is my primary prayer request for you. It's not that God would heal you or change your circumstances. I want him to bless you spiritually. And you're doing well. I'm not saying that you aren't, but I want to see God do more. I want to see him do even more and more and more, abundantly above and beyond what he's already doing in your life. So let's go ahead and look at this prayer again, here in verses 9 through 11. We have one long sentence in both the Greek and the English, so please follow along as I read the entire thing this morning from God's Word, starting in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The title of this morning's message is The Right Kind of Life. The Right Kind of Life. If you were here last week, we looked at the right kind of love because that is Paul's primary request in this prayer. That's what he starts with, that's what he focuses on, and everything else flows out of that first request. And he is praying that their love would increase exponentially, Not in a mere sentimental way, but but as a directed and dynamic love that alters the course of a person's life. This prayer contains five requests. And today we're going to focus on petitions two and three, where it becomes clear that the right kind of love produces the right kind of life. But before we get there, we need to start at the beginning with a very quick review. So the first and, and most important request that is found here that Paul prays for the Philippians is that their love would abound. So he wants them to abound in love, abound in love. That's prayer request number one. Look at verse nine again. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge 
and all discernment. This word abound, it means to overflow, to go beyond maximum capacity. And here Paul follows this word by stacking his phrases more and more on top of it. He doesn't want them to just grow a little. He wants them to grow a lot. And this love is defined by everything that follows because everything else flows out of this first request. But immediately, he provides two qualifying statements for what this abounding love looks like. He defines it right out of the gate. And first of all, he says that this right kind of love contains knowledge. Knowledge. Now, this isn't the the word that we're used to seeing in the text. This isn't your general knowledge, your normal sort of knowledge. This isn't gnosis. This is epinosis, epinosis. And it appears somewhere around 20 times in the New Testament. And every time that this word is used, it refers to God and spiritual things. Every time, without fail. This is a deep, personal knowledge of God. This is a, a deep knowledge of the things of God as he has revealed himself through his word. Only those who have been truly born again have this knowledge. Only those who have been truly born again truly know God in a deep and personal way. Others might know about God, but the believer actually knows God, knows him in a very real and personal way. Epinosis, it refers to instruction by experience. And that leads well into Paul's second statement, that the right kind of love contains discernment. Discernment. Discernment refers to the specific insight needed in the moment to effectively apply this love. It is the direct application of love to various people in various situations. Discernment is the ability essentially to size somebody up in the moment, to discover what their real needs are, before determining the best way to minister to them. It's one thing to have a desire to love someone. It's another thing altogether to know how to come alongside that person and how to reach out to them in love in a way that works, in a way that really will extend out and and move with them and bring them to a point where their love for the Lord deepens and grows. This word discernment, it's sometimes translated intelligence, It means the powers of mental judgment or a practical understanding of people and situations. If you are the parent of more than one child, you know that not every child is the same. Children are different, aren't they? One might be fearful and the other fearless. One might respond well to the rules and the other might have to learn the rules the hard way. Parenting isn't a one-size-fits-all sort of endeavor, is it? You can't just come up with a formula or a plan, plug in the math, and just let it go. That's not how parenting works. Each child is different. For one child, a strong word might melt them like butter. For another child, that same word might provoke them to anger and cause them to sin even more. And so it becomes the parent's job to gain a practical understanding of their child and to practice all discernment. In the same way, just as a parent loves their child, we must learn how to effectively apply this this God-centered, God-known love to one another. I'm sure you've noticed that this church is full of people who are not like you. (laughs) Have you noticed that? I have. 
I mean, we all have different backgrounds. We have different ages, different temperaments. We have men and women that have all gathered here together from, from different, different ways of life. We have different jobs. Some are up, some are down, some are healing, others need to be broken. It requires experiential knowledge and effective discernment to truly grow and abound in real love more and more and more. Without them, we're just spinning our wheels. Now, before moving on, it's important to note that both of these things are essential. You have to have both. You have to have knowledge and discernment. You can't just have one without the other. If you do, you have a problem. You're in serious trouble. Because if you have knowledge without discernment, your knowledge is worthless because you never use it. You never apply it. What good is knowledge if it's never used? If it's never put to work? On the flip side of that, if you have discernment without knowledge, you become a master manipulator. You become really good at sizing people up and manipulating the situation, but you're doing it without knowledge, without a real love that, that is birthed out of a knowledge on how to minister to that person well. You might know how, but you don't because you, you, you fail to love that person effectively. You have to have both. You have to have knowledge and discernment, real epinosis and real discernment in order to minister to people and to love them in the way that God has required us to love. That is why it is so important, so important for us to have the right kind of love, the love that excels at both. And how do you get it? Where does this love come from? Well, it doesn't come from you. And it doesn't come from me. I mean, we all know the answer, right? This love comes from God. You have to follow Paul's example here in the text. You have to pray for it. You have to get on your knees and ask for it. Because this is so necessary and so important for our development as believers, as Christians, for us to grow in harmony with one another as, as a solid body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, for everything that he has called us to and everything that even this text flows into and follows after this, in order for any of that to be true, we must first start here with love that is full of knowledge, true knowledge, and true discernment. And, and don't just pray this for yourself. Pray it for others. Pray it for those around you. It's not selfish to do that, to say, Lord, would you increase their love because I really want to benefit from that? I mean, there's nothing wrong in saying that. I mean, we all benefit from it, but, but it's just, a, it, it, it's, it's a good, solid prayer. And we must all, we must all ask for it if we want it. We can't just muster it up within our, within our bellies. We can't make it happen. So we need to pray this not just for ourselves, but for others. And let's also include those who are doing well spiritually. Let's not just pray for that person that gets on our nerves. Let's not just pray for that believer who struggles from time to time and is obvious. Let's pray for each other, even those who are doing well spiritually. That's the first request, for the Philippians to abound in love. Request number two, Paul now wants them to approve the best. Approve the best. He wants them to abound in love and approve the best. Look at verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. Here is the expectation. This is what you would expect from someone who is abounding in love with all knowledge and all discernment. 
The word approve here is normally translated elsewhere in the New Testament as the word test. Test. It literally means to examine or discern, to put to the test in a positive way so as to gain approval. So this is a positive word. This isn't a negative word. In a similar way, when Paul uses that word excellent here, he's not referring to determining between that which is right and that which is wrong. Most people can do that. Let's be honest. Most people, when faced with a choice, they know what is right and they know what is wrong. Most people can see the difference between good and bad. It doesn't mean that we always do the right thing or that we make the right choice. But in most cases, we can tell the difference between that which is right and that which is wrong. This word excellent instead carries with it a sense of superiority, of worthiness. It is to distinguish not between good and bad, but good and best. In the end, it all comes down to decision-making and priorities. So the skill that Paul wants us to have here is to be able to look at two good things and pick the better of the two. That's what he wants us to do. Unfortunately, most Christians today refuse to live like this or develop this skill, let alone pray for it. Church, it, it never ceases to amaze me how many Christians trust every book they see in the Christian bookstore or every song they hear on Christian radio or every pastor they find in the world of podcasting. Look, I, I hate to say it, but there are biblical scholars who make a living by writing commentaries who are not saved. They study the Bible, but they do not know the God of the Bible. There are Christian artists who make music for the Christian market, not because they want to glorify God or edify the church, but because they would rather be a big fish in a little pond than a little fish in a big pond. And yes, there is a lot of money in that industry. There are even pastors who spend no more than two or three hours every week preparing their 15-minute messages about how to have a better vacation. And people love that. They love it. The point is that we cannot afford to just simply unplug our brains and leave discernment at the door every time something Christian comes our way. We can't afford to do that. We have to test these things. We have to approve that which is best. Let's go ahead and flip over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Our word for approve also appears here in this very well-known verse at the beginning of Romans 12. And look at verse 2, where Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, there's our word, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we come to know God's will, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect? From continual testing, with a continually renewed mind that transforms us until we look less and less like the world and more and more like Christ. A.W. Pink writes, There is to be an ever-widening gulf between the character and conduct of the world and that of the saint, and an ever-growing conformity to Christ, not only outwardly, but inwardly. Folks, this isn't a one-time church camp experience. This is a way of life that Paul is describing here in this text. 
And ultimately, it all comes down to choices. It all comes down to choices. Are we choosing things that are excellent? Are we settling for things that are just okay? Too many Christians settle. They prefer lesser things because it's easy, and they lack that knowledge and discernment that is necessary to tell the difference. That is why our choices between good, better, and best, specifically how we spend our time, talent, and treasure, what we put our lives into and what we give out, all of that must be determined by God's word and not the word of other Christians. It's really important that we get that. Because guess what? Many of those other Christians, they don't have an overflowing abundance of love with knowledge and discernment either. Now, that's not to say that some don't. Some definitely do. Some are further along in their Christian journey than others, and it would be foolish to ignore their recommendations. But generally, we live in a time, church, when doctrine is considered one man's opinion and theology is just subjective theory. Just last year, Ligonier Ministries published the results of a poll titled The State of Theology. I want to share some of this with you. Because every two years, a demographically balanced panel conducts over 3,000 interviews with evangelicals. They present a series of statements, and the participants then say whether or not they agree with those statements. A simple test, right? Well, here are just a few of the results. Statement number 11. Everyone sends a little, but most people are good by nature. That's the first statement. Everyone sends a little, but most people are good by nature. The percentage of evangelicals who agree with that statement, 52%. Statement number three, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51% agree, 42% disagree, and the rest are unsure. Statement number six, I couldn't believe this. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 78% agree. 18% disagree. And the rest are unsure. That's staggering. In case you're wondering who these evangelicals are, here's how the study defines them. It says, quote, evangelicals are defined by LifeWay Research as people who strongly agreed with the following four statements. Number one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Number two, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And number four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Friends, these are not Jehovah's Witnesses agreeing and disagreeing with these statements. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the current state of theology for the American church. Statement number 12, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Only 23% agree, 69% disagree, 8% not sure. In other words, less than one-fourth of those polled have the slightest clue when it comes to God's holiness. Statement number 20, worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 58% agree. 
30% disagree, 12% not sure. And here's where it all comes down to. Again, I'm not going to share everything with you this morning, but, but this is, I think, the question that colors and determines everything else when it comes to this particular poll. Statement number 30. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 60% agree. 30% disagree. 10% not sure. The study concludes by saying, this survey reveals deep confusion about the Bible's teaching, not only among Americans as a whole, but also among evangelicals. There is something very wrong when a majority of Americans can give the correct answers to basic Bible questions and at the same time say that their beliefs are purely a matter of personal opinion. These results show the urgent need for sound biblical teaching and a bold preaching of the gospel. Millions of people do not understand the holiness of God, the reality of sin, and the one way of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is much work to be done, end quote. Folks, if this is the current state of theology in the American church, then we have got to break away from the norm. We have got to break away from this. Our choices, our decisions in life, both big and small, must be determined by God's word and not the word of other Christians. More than ever, in this sin-soaked 21st century postmodern world, we must test and approve the very best. The stakes are too high, and life is too short to waste time on lesser things. Every minute of every day we make choices, and those choices that we make make all the difference. J. Oswald Sanders writes, and I love this quote, he says, after making a generous allowance of eight hours a day for sleep and rest, and few really need more than that, Three hours a day for meals and social intercourse, 10 hours a day for work and travel, and five days there still remains no fewer than 35 hours unaccounted for in each week. What happens to them? How are the extra two days in a week invested? The whole of a man's contribution to the kingdom of God might well turn upon how those crucial hours are employed. They determine whether his life will be commonplace or extraordinary, end quote. So beloved, which path are you on? Are you on the course of commonplace or extraordinary? As you live your life, do you approve the best or do you approve of wasting your time? Martin Lloyd-Jones adds, the difficulty in life I sometimes think is the art of knowing what to leave out and what to ignore. How prone we are to dissipate our energies and to waste our time by forgetting what is vital and giving ourselves to second and third rate issues. Paul says, don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. Make wise choices. Make the best choices. And if you do that, then this third prayer request will naturally follow. And Paul has prayed for the Philippians to abound in love and approve the best. Number three, Paul wants them to Act with integrity. Act with integrity. Look at the rest of verse 10. He says, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Notice how all of the phrases in this prayer are connected. Paul says, It is, and then with, and then so that, and then so be. 
His primary request is for love to abound, but not just any love, love with all knowledge and with all discernment. And not just aimlessly, but for the purpose of approving that which is excellent, that which is best, between two good choices, you're going to pick the right one, the better choice. You're not going to settle for something else. And in doing so, here is the result. Here's what happens when you do that. To be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, he says, abound in love to approve the best so you can act with integrity. Ultimately, the right kind of love produces the right kind of life. At the end of verse 10, Paul says, right living from the right love will produce two outcomes. And the first is purity. The second is blamelessness. Originally, I chose to break up this prayer into at least two or three messages because the content is so good and it's so rich. And if I need it in my life, I'm sure somebody else here does too. So I decided we're going to slow down. We're going to spend a little bit more time in these, in, in these verses, these three verses. But I also decided to slow down here because Paul uses some very interesting words, very unique words in just these few verses that require some explanation. And the first word here is pure. It is a special word that appears only one other time in the New Testament. It speaks very specifically to living a life of integrity. The King James and NASB 95 translations use the word sincere, which is an okay translation considering where this word comes from and how it is developed. The Greek word itself is a combination of two words that have been mashed together. One word meaning son, and the other word meaning judge. So most lexicons will simply say that this word means to judge or to test by the light of the sun. You see, in, in ancient times, the largest industry was the pottery industry. And just like today, the quality of the product determined the product's value. The cheapest pottery was thick, it was heavy, it was crude. You could still find pieces of it scattered all over the Middle East. These pots didn't require much skill, and they didn't, they didn't require too much to make. So the market was just flooded with them. You could find these pots everywhere. But the good stuff, the expensive stuff, it was very thin, and it, and it had this almost clear, translucent color to it. This kind of pottery was extremely fragile, both before and after firing, and as a result, it would often crack. And as you can guess, the more cracks meant less money for the guy who was selling it. So it was common for less honest dealers to cover up and fill in these cracks with wax. And once the piece had been painted or glazed, you could hardly tell the difference. But you could still see the crack if you held it up to a bright light, like the sun. Then all of a sudden you could see the wax and you could see the cracks and it would, it would become clear and apparent that this was not a whole piece of pottery. The honest dealers in the ancient world would stamp two Latin words on their pots. The words sin, sera, meaning without wax. And that's where our word sincere comes from. Paul is saying here that our lives must be marked by the same sort of sincerity. They must be without wax. They must be without cracks. Because there is a genuine wholeness to the Christian life. And it requires us to be judged and tested by the light of the sun. And those who lack 
this sincerity, this purity, according to the New Testament, those people have a name. Can anyone guess what that name is? It's hypocrite. Hypocrite. Now, often when we hear that word, we automatically think about somebody else, don't we? Which is why it's good for us to remind ourselves of the various shapes and forms that hypocrisy can take. And we're not going to get into all of them this morning, but I do want to share just a few with you. And we'll start with the most common and work our way down. First of all, if you want to be a good hypocrite, just pretend to be what you're not. Pretend to be what you're not. Flip over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. This becomes so clear that there are probably at least, I'm guessing, six or eight or maybe even more forms of hypocrisy that could be found in Matthew 23 alone. We're only going to look at a couple this morning. Matthew 23. Just pretend to be what you're not. Look at verse 25. Jesus had this to say to the religious folks. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and there's our word, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. He says, look, you're wasting your time. You're cleaning the outside of a cup, but on the inside of the cup, it's all dirty. It's filthy. It's disgusting. Nobody wants to drink out of that. What good is a cup that looks clean on the outside, but on the inside is filthy? But knowing your heart, the inside doesn't match the outside. He then uses a second illustration there in the text. Look at verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, the opposite of integrity, sincerity, purity is simply pretending to be what you're not. It's cleaning the outside of the cup. It's painting the outside of the tomb. It's making everything all dressed up and pretty on the outside, while on the inside, things are rotting away. Nothing is as it should be on the inside where it really counts. It's about being the person you say you are. That's the first and most obvious shape of hypocrisy, pretending to be what you're not. Another form that is far more subtle is doing what you do to be seen. Just do what you do to be seen. Staying in Matthew 23, look at verse 5. Speaking again of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. You see, God knows all things. He can say this because he actually sees their heart. He's able to look on the inside. He's able to see just how dirty the cup really is. And so he's able to look at their hearts and see what motivates these men. He says they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. They replace true spirituality with a facade. Jesus goes on. In verse 5, to provide two examples of this, he says that they make their phylacteries broad. Now, some of you are thinking, what on earth is a phylactery? I thought the dinosaurs had died out long before this was ever written. And I get it. Phylactery sounds like an interesting word. Well, you see, Jewish men, even today, still wear these phylacteries, these small boxes that they would put on their foreheads and they would contain scripture during times of prayer and public worship. But the Pharisees, they wore them all the time. 
And they would broaden the straps in order to make them larger and more noticeable to people because they they wanted everyone to see just how much they love God's law. They wanted that to be apparent. Jesus' second example is that they make their fringes long. According to Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22, fringes or tassels were to be attached to the bottom corner of the outer garment. As one who lived in perfect obedience to the law, Jesus himself followed this command. It was the fringes of his cloak that the hemorrhaging woman touched in Matthew 9. The purpose of the fringes was to remind people to always follow in God's commands, to always walk only in the pathways of God. So what the Pharisees did was they made their fringes bigger and far more noticeable so that everyone knew that they were God's man, that they took his commands seriously. Well, unfortunately, they didn't do it for God. They didn't do it for an audience of one. They did it for an audience of everyone else. They wanted man's approval. And this goes back to something Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is so, so important and extremely interesting what Jesus says here at the very beginning of Matthew 6. In verse 1, he says, and he's not speaking to the Pharisees when he says this. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's a fascinating statement. I mean, think about that for a moment. You have two people who do the exact same thing. One person gets rewarded and the other doesn't. What's the difference? What's the difference between the one who gets rewarded and one who doesn't? Here it is. Are you ready? Who you hope is watching. That makes the difference. If you hope God is watching, you get a reward. If you hope others are watching, you get no reward. It's as simple as that. Friends, it is so important that your heart is in the right place. Because it is easy. It is easy. Sometimes we think it's so hard to do the right thing. No, that's not true. It's easy to do the right thing. It's hard to do the right thing with the right motive, with the right heart for the right reason. Because it's easy to do the right thing for the wrong reason and completely miss the point. Listen, God wants your heart. He wants you to do the right thing for the right reason, to please Him for the sake of pleasing Him and not to do it to be seen. Francois Fenelion was the court preacher for King Louis XIV of France in the 17th century. One Sunday when the king and his attendants arrived for service, no one else was there. The entire church, the chapel was empty. No one to be found except for the preacher. King Louis demanded an explanation. And Francois replied, I had published that you would not come to church today. And the king was astonished. He said, why would you do such a thing? I didn't give you permission to do that. To which the preacher replied, in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth, and who flatters the king. If you want to be a hypocrite, just pretend to be what you're not, or do what you do to be seen. Another option is to say one thing and do another. Say one thing and do another. Still in Matthew 23, look at verses 2 and 3. There in Matthew 23. 
He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Jesus literally says they don't practice what they preach. Their preaching is good. It's solid. It comes from God's word. Do what they say. Follow their preaching, but don't do what they do. Because again, their heart is far from the Lord. Because they say one thing, and then they turn around and they do another. Let me give you guys a little bit of insight. Do you want to know how to really break a pastor's heart? I'm going to tell you. I'm just going to be vulnerable for a minute. If you really want to get to me, if you really want to just destroy my week, destroy my year, destroy my life, this is all you got to do. It's really simple. You just have to come here, show up, worship, serve, give yourself to the ministry here at First Baptist Church, and then walk out those doors and do a complete 180 and live a completely different life. Just completely walk away from your witness for Christ. That's how you get to me. And if I feel the pain from that, from that sort of hypocrisy, how do you think God feels? Church, God wants us to be without wax. He wants us to be the real deal. He wants us to be pure so that when our lives are held up to the light of the sun, we pass the test. We are not one person on Sunday and someone else on Monday. We don't have cracks separating the pieces of our lives into various compartments. We don't have our church friends over here and our real friends over there. James Montgomery Boyce writes, God's love will not flow through a Christian whose life is a sham. Hypocrisy will stop the flow. And he is absolutely right. Absolutely right about that. We must be pure. That is the first result of the right kind of life from the right kind of love. It's a purity that is sincere, without wax, without cover-up, without hypocrisy. The second result listed here in Philippians 1.10 is blamelessness. Blamelessness. Now, this word is really interesting because it's not the word that Paul typically uses for blameless. It only appears three times in the entire New Testament, and it literally means not stumbling. It's a positive word with a negative prefix. The positive root literally means to stumble, and the negative, ah, on the front of it, means not. We have this in our English language. When you go to a museum, you go to think, right? You go to a museum to muse, muse to think. When you plop down in front of the couch, in front of the TV, you go to amuse yourself. You go for amusement. You go to not think. It's the same idea here with this word. This word for blameless, it means to live your life without stumbling. In other words, you don't keep falling into sin. You don't keep shaming the Savior that you represent. And you don't cause others to stumble as well. You're blameless. There's so much more to say about this. And Lord willing, we will pick it back up next week and unpack more of this final piece of the third request before finishing out the prayer with the last two requests. But for now, I want you to see that these two results, the right kind of life, that both purity and blamelessness, that a life without hypocrisy, without stumbling, together they compose a life of integrity. Integrity. We are called to act with integrity. Even that word that we use so often, integrity, 
It comes from the math term integer. And you might remember from your school days, an integer is what? It's a whole number. It carries with it this idea of wholeness, of completion, of fullness. That's what integrity is all about. No cracks, no flaws, no inconsistencies. Just an honest, complete, and consistent life. That's what Paul prayed for when he prayed for the Philippians. Well, as I have read and reread this prayer over and over and over again this week, I couldn't help but wonder, why didn't Paul just command them to do these things? Why pray about it when you can address it directly? He could have encouraged them to abound in love, to approve the best, to act with integrity. Instead, he prays. Why? I think one of the main reasons might be because it is extremely difficult for us to see the flaws in our own life, isn't it? It's easy to see the fault in others. That speck in your brother's eye is hard to miss. But our blind spots make it very difficult for us to see the cracks in our own lives. The prophet Jeremiah would have never counseled anyone to follow their heart. He wrote, the heart is deceitful. And above all things, it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? How often we deceive ourselves, we turn a blind eye to our own defects, or we cover them up with wax so that others would look at us and say, there is a guy or there is a gal who has it all together. How often do we do that? When most of us don't know or don't want to know how bad we really are. And what we do know, we justify, we explain, we excuse, we brush away. That's why Paul prays. Rather than address these things directly, rather than tell them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and to work on these areas in their lives, he prays that God would get through to his friends and produce this work in them so that when their lives are tested, they will be found pure and blameless in the scrutinizing light of the sun because that's something that God does in us. And this is a good prayer. This is an excellent prayer. It's a prayer that, again, as I encouraged you last week, I'll encourage you again this week, pray this prayer. Pray this prayer for me. Pray this prayer for each other. And definitely pray this prayer for yourself. That you would abound in love more and more. And that love would be a love of knowledge and discernment, a deep personal knowledge, and a real applicable discernment. In order that you may approve that which is best, those things that are excellent and not settle for secondary or third-rate things, but those things that are really going to build you up and strengthen you and establish you in the faith so that you may be pure and blameless, so that you can act with integrity, so that you can be without hypocrisy and without offense until the day of Jesus Christ. This is an excellent prayer, a wonderful prayer, and it's not over yet. We still have two other requests to look at. It's a good prayer to pray for others, for yourself, but even those who appear to be doing well spiritually. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for doing this work in us. Lord, we know that we cannot produce it in and of ourselves. Even the strongest man in this room could not muster the strength and the fortitude necessary to create this sort of love. Lord, we can't do this. We can't do it in and of ourselves, but Lord, we can ask for it. We can pray for it. We can go before the throne of grace and we can say, Lord, you have begun this work in us 
and you will see it through to the day of completion. Until then, Lord, would you continue to do that work? And would that work include an abounding love? A love that would just exceed beyond the maximum capacity of where we currently are. Would you give us an even greater capacity to love? And would you just overflow our hearts with more and more and more of this love? Would it be the right kind of love, Lord? A love that is doctrinal, a love that, a love that is grounded in a deep personal knowledge of you and your word. And as we grow in that knowledge, Lord, would you teach us to apply it and, te- and to apply it well to every man in every situation. And in doing so, would you make us pure? Would you make us blameless without wax and without cracks? Lord, would you preserve us and keep us until the day of Jesus Christ? Lord, you are so good. You are so powerful. You are so mighty. And Lord, again, we thank you for beginning this work in us. And we know that you will see it through and that you will complete the work. And in that we rejoice. Until then, Lord, I pray that we would continue to pray these things for ourselves, for each other, and that we would work hard, much like how Paul says to the Colossians, for this I toil with all of my strength, all of your strength, of which you powerfully work within me. Lord, would you work within us? Would your strength work through us as we toil and labor hard to become more and more like Christ and less and less like the world? We love you, Lord, and we thank you again for these mercies and for the grace that you have showered upon us in your name. Amen.